Hey guys, welcome to the Filming with Josh podcast. I'm your host, Joshua Milligan, and this is episode number 98, Shooting Better Interviews. This is the Filming with Josh podcast, brought to you by Rustic River Media. Welcome to the videographer's home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. If you are new to the podcast, Filming with Josh is your home for tips, tricks, and how to make flicks. Here on the podcast, we talk about all things video, from how to shoot better interviews to how to price your work. We talk about it all on this podcast. We also have a Facebook group called Filming with Josh that is a private group on Facebook. So if you go to Facebook and enter in the search bar, Filming with Josh, you can ask to join the group today, the Filming with Josh Facebook group. It's a continuation of this podcast and is a place where you can come and chat about what I talked about in this podcast, as well as other things. You can post videos, ask for feedback, you can ask questions that you want to Uh, on a topic that you want to learn and various people, myself included, will hop on and answer those questions for you. Um, And we also talk about things like gear releases, um, new trends in video, things like that. So be sure to go to Filming with Josh on Facebook and ask to join the group today. Now, I'm about a week or so, week and a half off of releasing a podcast. I apologize for that. I've been on the road. Last week, I was on the road with some friends of mine, helping them with a photo project that they were doing down in my home state of Texas. And uh, this week, I have been playing catch up and then also getting ready for a bunch of projects I have coming up. Uh, And one of the projects I have coming up is for one of my larger clients, and it's next week. It's a four-day shoot, and I... I'm going to be shooting like, I think it's like seven or eight different interviews during that project. And we're also shooting a bunch of B-roll and and scripted content and stuff as well. But it definitely is going to be interview driven. And so as such, I was in my office today, I was kind of prepping my gear, getting things charged, getting things ready for next week's shoot. And I realized a good topic that I could talk about on the podcast would be how to shoot better interviews. Um, Reason being is that interviews are Honestly, they're like one of the most important things that you could ever learn to do in video. Like learning how to do interviews well is huge because interviews are the backbone of many, many projects, like more than half the projects out there, right? Interviews are everywhere. You could watch a documentary on Netflix or on TV and there'll be tons of interviews. A lot of TV shows like 60 Minutes, things like that, interviews, Um, a lot of corporate or commercial content, interviews, interviews, branded content, um, brand anthems. Not all are interview driven, but a lot of them are. Interviews are massive, whether you're in sports, whether you're in education, whether you are doing interviews for a corporate company, whatever the case may be, even if it's just documentary filming, there's just interviews everywhere all the time happening every day. So learning how to shoot great interviews is really important if you're wanting to build a career in video. And when I say shoot better interviews, I'm talking about the whole process, not not just physically hitting record, but everything that encompasses interviews from lighting to sound to where your cameras are, to how many cameras you use, to how you even direct the interviews or get people to um, give you the answers that you're looking for. All of those things are important and learning how to be better at those different areas will help you shoot better interviews. And that's what I want to talk about today. Now, I know interviews don't usually sound sexy, right? Like interviews are not as sexy as shooting a music video or as sexy as doing something that's got a lot of like slow motion or extreme color grading or anything like that. 
I understand that thought process. Interviews are just interviews. However, I see interviews as an art form in and of itself. Like they are, to me, just as artistic as going out and shooting a project for a college football team. And I love sports and I love action and I love fishing and hunting and I love all of these different things, mountain climbing, biking, all of those things sound way more attractive in terms of what you can film and the content you can create. And it's true, you can be very artistic in all of those things. But interviews are also a great form of art. And if you approach it like that, I think you'll have a better mindset that will help you shoot better interviews. So the first thing I want to say is when you're when you're approaching an interview, don't just stick someone under a shade tree, throw a lob on them, and hit record on your camera. Find a way to think about your interview as a piece of art and realize that it is a very important piece of art because it might be the first thing that someone sees in your project. And if your interview looks like you stuck someone under a shade tree with a lav mic, there's a good chance people aren't going to watch the rest of the video. Or if they do, they're not going to really see it to the professional level that you might want them to see it. But if you take the time to approach your interviews as a form of art, and you think about, how am I going to light this? How am I going to diffuse this? Where am I going to put the person? How do I want to frame them? Do I want them looking at the camera? Do I want them looking away from the camera? Do I want to break the rule of lower thirds? Do I want to have negative space be behind them instead of front of them? Because that's an artistic choice. Do I want to shoot above their eye line for some reason for an artistic choice? Do I want to have handheld shots uh, for my interviews so that there's movement in the interviews? Do I want to shoot tights and wides or mids or a combination thereof? Do I want a sliding camera or not? Do I want to have um, a boom mic? Do I want to have a lav mic? Like all of these things contribute to the art that is interviews. And if you approach it with that thought process of thinking about all the different attributes that make up an interview, then you will do a better job of recording interviews just because you're thinking about it. Just thinking about it and having that mindset in and of itself will help you shoot better interviews. So look at an interview as a piece of art and imagine that the camera is a blank canvas and how you paint the canvas is with your light and your subject is obviously the person you're filming or maybe persons if there's more than one person and that those people are going to be in your canvas, and then start thinking about the different background elements, what you want to be behind them, what you want to be in front of them if you want some foreground elements, um, and start thinking about, like, can we bring things in, props, and stage it, or do we want it to, to be more natural and have less staging, but still, you know, obviously with careful consideration on what's in front or behind the person. Start thinking about those things on your blank canvas that is your camera. And if you think about it from that from that approach, you'll see it as a form of art. Now, in saying that, I want to give you some direction on all the different elements that you should think about when approaching an interview. These are things I'm thinking about right now for the project I have next week. And so we'll just start from things like location scouting and figuring out where you're going to do the interview. And we'll work our way over to um, lighting, sound, cameras, lenses, directing the interview, etc. Well, the first step of shooting an interview is figuring out who you're filming and where. You probably already have an idea who you're going to film. 
if you're doing a client project, they might work with you to figure out, okay, who do we want to be on camera? Do we want the CEO or the CAO to be on camera? Do we want to have employees on camera? Um, do we want to have a customer on camera, more testimonial driven? Is it a doc project? Do we want to have uh, a specific person on camera who's going to be contributing to the story somehow? Obviously, finding the person or persons is the number one thing you have to do for the interview because without people, interviews don't happen. But once you've decided who you're going to film, the next step is figuring out where. Where you film an interview is arguably the most important aspect to an interview beyond what the person says on camera. It is extremely important. If you shoot somewhere that is very lively, you'll have a lively feeling video. If you shoot somewhere that's really dull, you'll have a dull feeling video. If you shoot somewhere where there's a lot of unwanted noise, machines going off, air conditioning, things like that, you're going to reduce the quality of your video. If you shoot somewhere where you can have a lot of control over those sounds, you're going to increase the quality of your video. Figuring out where you're going to shoot an interview is very, very important. So when I work with a new customer or even a pre-existing customer, when we start talking about a project we have coming up and we start talking about the interviews, one of the very first things we talk about is where are we going to do that, do the interviews at? Preferably, if the client is within drivable distance, I will typically, before the shoot, go in location scout. And yes, I charge my clients for this because it is my time, but it's part of the fee that we charge when um, you hire us for a project. I've said many times before on the Filming with Josh podcast um, that you figure out your pricing based on your time plus expenses. And so location scouting is part of the time that you charge for. But I bill that into my estimated cost because I know when I'm working with the customer, as long as they're you know within a drivable distance, that I'm probably going to want a location scout before I just show up with my cameras and call it a, you know call it a day. Like I, I need to know what I'm dealing with. So if I can go see a place in person, if it's relatively close, then I'll go and scout the location to figure out what rooms look and sound the best. So if it's a corporate office and we know that we want to shoot interviews, let's say we've got three or four interviews, let's say four we want to shoot inside a corporate office, and let's say we want them all to have different looks, then I have to go to their corporate building or their corporate headquarters or wherever it is we're going to be filming at, and I need to go there and scout and look at all of the places that are potential filming sites because I have to find four if we're, if we're doing four interviews. So four different places with four different looks is challenging. You could have a giant building and still have a hard time finding four really solid places because you want to find a place that's got enough space. That's one of the first things I look for in a room that I want to shoot an interview. And obviously outside, it's not as much of a problem, but when you're inside, you always want to think about the size of the area you're filming in. The more space you have, the better. The reason is, one, you want to be able to separate your subject from the background. I've seen people, and, and I did this earlier in my career, where you'd film an interview and you have someone stand in front of like a blank wall. That's a no-no. Like, in my opinion, you don't do that. It looks bad because you are not creating any sort of separation from the person in the background. You want to have some separation there. Even if you have a couch, for instance, in a room where there is a wall, I still pull the couch in front of the wall some because I want to create that separation. So you want space. You need space because space gives you the ability to pull your subject away from whatever it is that they is behind them. 
Plus, you want space so you can work with lenses. One of my favorite things, and we'll talk about this later in the podcast, but one of my favorite things to do when filming interviews is to use a tight lens for one of my angles. And a, and, and a tight lens will give you this subject separation and will give you this depth that you can't create with a shorter lens. Even if your shorter lens has a really fast aperture, you might be able to create soft bokeh, but there's a difference between soft bokeh and pulling someone away from a background and isolating them. Part of that is physically pulling them away from something, but another part of it is the lens. If you use a longer lens, like a 70 to 200, and you're at you know, 200 millimeters, or if you're using a, a 135 mil, or even an 85, those tighter lenses will help you create depth in your image by sucking that person away from the background. And it's a really attractive look. Customers love it. I love it. Most people love it. It's very aesthetically pleasing. But if you're going to use a long lens, you have to have space. So working in an area with space is the number one thing I look for when I'm location scouting. Is there enough room to pull the subject away from whatever the background is? And is there enough room for me to isolate them with longer glass? The other thing I'm looking for in a room with space is I'm looking for um, room to put multiple cameras and lights. If the, if the space is tight, you'll have a hard time lighting it because your C-stands and your lights and your modifiers, especially your modifiers that go in front of the lights, they'll, they'll creep into your frame or they'll create shadows. Or if you're trying to bounce a light off the wall, it might be too harsh even if you turn the settings down because you might be too close. So working with space is huge. And I, I always look for the spaciest environments I can get, with exception. <laughs> and, and I say with exception because sound is a part of it as well. When you are looking at a room that you're wanting to potentially use for an interview, one of the first things I do is I, I first start by listening. Do I hear any unwanted noise? Is there really loud HC in that room? Is there a refrigerator or an ice maker or something like that in the distance that I can pick up in that room? And if so, I always talk to the client and ask, like, can we unplug those things or can we turn the AC off or can we remove whatever that noise is? A lot of times the answer is yes, but sometimes the answer is no. I've worked in corporate buildings where they can't kill the AC or where they can't unplug the ice maker. And so if that's a problem and you have no way of fixing it, you need to find another place. Otherwise, you're going to have to do a lot of noise reduction in post, and there's no guarantee that you won't alter the person's voice in the process. So the first thing I do once I find a room that has space is I listen, and I try to see if I can hear any unwanted noises. If I don't, or if I do, and I am told that I can turn those unwanted noises off, then the second thing I do is I clap my hands. If you clap your hands and you hear echo in the room, that's called reverb, then that could be an issue because that would be picked up on your mics. And we're going to talk about mic choices later because mic choice is huge for interviews. But if you clap your hands and you hear reverb or that echo sound, that's something that you've got to really think about because if it's pretty bad, you may not want to shoot in that room. And that goes back to the size of the room because sometimes a bigger room might have more reverb if there's not enough carpeting or furniture or things like that to suck in the noise. You see, one of the things that you can do to eliminate reverb is by having a lot of padding in a room, whether that's carpet or furniture or both, things on the wall, paintings on the wall, things that dampen the sound. Because if someone talks, the sound waves that are coming out of their mouth, 
they go forward and then they hit something reflective and then the sound waves bounce in another direction and then in another direction and they just bounce all over the room and they create reverb. And that's what that echo sound is. So if the room is really reflective and makes a lot of reverb, then you either have to find a way to minimize that reverb by hanging sound blankets everywhere or bringing in furniture, or you have to pick another room. Now, mic choice can help you reduce the effect of reverb or at least make it sound more natural, but the less reverb a room has the, to, to begin with, the better. So you're looking for a room with space and you're looking for a room that doesn't have a lot of unwanted sounds and you're looking for a room that has minimum reverb or reverb that you might find uh, a way to control. Those are some of the first things I do when I start location scouting for places to shoot interviews. Now, obviously, most of what I just said has to do with filming interviews indoors. And you might be saying, well, what about filming interviews outdoors? And the truth is, I try to avoid that at all costs. Because outside, you don't have control over lighting. You might have a situation where clouds are coming over the sun and it changes the darkness of the image or the exposure of the image and it, you know it could be very obvious when someone's looking at this nice bright interview and all of a sudden it just gets randomly dark you don't want that you know outside you don't have control over wind yes you can use things like uh, blimps on your gun mic to help you reduce wind so wind noise or wind sound but you don't want to have to do that right and other things are you don't have control outside over a lot of the background noise. You can have airplanes going by. You can have a train going by. You can have random cars go by. You can have birds that are creating unwanted sounds. Can you shoot interviews outside? Well, obviously, yeah. And I shoot interviews outside every year. It's just not my preference. I would rather shoot an interview in a controlled space where I can control the lighting, control the sound, and have control over who and, uh, and, and what comes in and out of the rooms. I just want to have control over that as much as possible. If you are going to shoot something outside, then you have to start thinking about how you can diffuse the light and things like that. Again, we'll get to that when we get to lighting. But just know that if you have a choice to shoot inside or outside, try to choose inside if you can. That being said, sometimes it does make sense to shoot outside. If your project is something like, for example, a, a handful of years ago, I did, um, it's kind of like a branded video for an auction an auctioning company um, that did like big machinery that they auctioned off like tractors, backhoes, things like that. And so the entire auction event that happened over like a two or three day period, all of it was taking place outside. And so it made sense to shoot the interviews outside because I wanted to have the people that we were interviewing in front of some of the equipment that they were auctioning off. And it worked out great. But again, it was not ideal because you always have to think about and worry about the the light shifting and changing. Can you diffuse the light, which adds more C-stands and scrims and things to be able to help you diffuse the light, which means more people involved a lot of times to be able to pull that off. You want to worry about things like um, sound, you know, making sure that there's no wind coming on the mics and stuff like that. And so all of those were things that made the interviews more tricky because I... I wanted them to look polished. I wanted them to look professional, but a lot of that stuff I just didn't have control over, you know, especially for that particular project because it was a two, we had a two man crew for, for my crew for that project, me and uh, a production assistant. And, you know, me and my PA, we can control some things, but we can't control everything. And so it was a little bit of a risk shooting some of those interviews outside. It worked and it looks great. 
and I'm glad we chose to shoot them outside for that particular project. So sometimes you might have a project where it does make sense to shoot interviews outside. Another one might be, um, like I, I shot a project, as a pro bono project I did for um, our Texas chapter, Trout Unlimited or GRTU. Um, and I, I love GRTU. I'm, I volunteer for GRTU. I'm running for a board seat with them this fall. Great organization. And I'm excited to be a part of that organization. And one of the things I did for that organization is back earlier in February of this year, I shot a video pro bono for them uh, of Trout Fest Texas, which is a big event we put on uh, every year. And I just, I was running like AV at the event or helping out with AV, but I brought my FX6 and I ran around and shot some footage of the event, got some drone shots on my Mavic 3 Cine. And I shot some interviews to get people that were on the board of GRTU and people that helped put the event on. I wanted to hear from them, like, what makes the event special? How did it get started? What is the event? Why is it unique? Why should people come? And I interviewed them outside with lav mics for this project. Now, obviously, this is pro bono. I'm not bringing a full crew. We're not diffusing anything. I'm not running boom mics, nothing like that. I just stuck a lav on them, single camera, handheld. And it worked great for that particular project and it fit the feel and the look of everything else. So sometimes it does make sense to shoot interviews outside. But the most polished interviews, the ones that are going to look the most professional, the ones that are going to sound the most professional, the ones that are going to be the most controlled are the ones that you can do inside. So if I have a choice, 99% of the time, I'm going to choose my to shoot my interviews inside unless for whatever reason, for that specific project, it makes sense to shoot it outside. But I'm almost always going to shoot inside. And every once in a while, I'll have to fight a client on that because they don't understand. A good example would be last year, I shot a project for a real estate company. And they really wanted to shoot their interview outside. They wanted it to be kind of Joanna Gaines style. Let's shoot it outside. Let's be in the elements around some pretty flowers and and vegetation and, and do that. But I really did not want to do that because of several reasons. One, it was in the middle of summer in Texas, so I knew they were going to be sweating. Two, they wanted to shoot it in a garden area. Well, that creates a lot of green reflection on clothing and skin. You don't think about this sometimes, but the colors around you can alter the image by the reflections of the colors. And one of the things that that is really bad about that is vegetation. And so they wanted to shoot it in this backyard area of their neighbors. And it was a really pretty backyard. I, I thought it was really attractive. However, greenery everywhere. And so much so that it was really reflective on their white clothes and skin. And I knew, I knew it wasn't going to look good on camera. Plus, the clouds were going in and out of the sun, creating a lot of issues where it would be bright and dark and then bright and then dark. There were just so many problems with it. And where they were located was downtown in our town, which has over 100,000 people. So I knew there were going to be noises, birds, wind, um, people passing by that I would have zero control over. But it's what they wanted. So we shot the interviews outside, and I thought they looked horrible, to be honest. In fact, I would never show someone that project today. And they were happy with it, and I'm glad that they were happy with it. But for me, it was embarrassing. It looked so bad, but I knew, I knew it was going to look bad because the elements were just not good for that kind of filming. Had we a shot it inside, had we a shot it in a controlled environment where I could control the light, where there wouldn't be a lot of weird green reflections from 
from plants and things and, and where I could control the sound, then I would have been able to make that project look so much better, so much more polished. But today, if you were to ask me like, hey, show me some videos you've done to market real estate firms, I would not show you that one because I don't think it looks good. So I'm glad that they were happy with it. It was what they wanted. But as a professional, it looked pretty bad in my opinion. And I would be embarrassed to show anybody that project because of that. So when I can, I always tell my clients, let's shoot it indoors unless it makes sense to shoot it outdoors. And if my client fights me on it, I do my very best to try to explain to them all the benefits of shooting inside versus outside. Now, when you're shooting an interview inside, you aren't always going to get the room that you want. Sometimes you're going to be stuck in a smaller room or you're going to have some reverb that you don't want or you're going to have some noise like AC noise or things that you can't control. And it just is what it is. In the real world, when you're shooting real projects with real clients, you're going to run into that. And it just is what it is. So you do your best to work around it and do your best to minimize the the AC noise or whatever noise you hear, put sound blankets over it or hang stuff in that direction to dampen it, you know, um, and then just know going into post, you might have to do some noise reduction. That's where programs like Isotope come into play. And if there is some reverb, you'll just have to select a better microphone. And if there is some space issues where you can't use a longer lens, you're just going to have to work with a shorter lens. So you just have to do your best to be adaptive. So I'm not telling you that, every situation, you're going to get the most perfect room or the most perfect place because you're not. But I'm just trying to give you advice on what I would look for, which is a spacious room that has the least amount of reverb possible and the least amount of unwanted background audio possible. And just go from there. And if you're in an, an in a room that isn't ideal, just do your best to work around it. This is the real world. It is what it is. Sometimes you just got to make it work. Now, what do you do if you can't location scout? Obviously, you're going to run into that. I run into that all the time. I location scout when I can, but sometimes I can't. Maybe the client's too far away, or maybe there's just no time between now and the shoot to go look at the places that we have available. So if that's the case, I will have my client take their cell phone and go and take pictures or video shots of different rooms that they have at their buildings and I will have them text me those so I can take a, a look at what's available and give them some feedback on which ones I think look the best. I'll also ask them to go into these rooms and clap their hands and to tell me if they hear echo. And if they hear echo, if it's really bad, I tell them to find another room. And so I kind of have them do some location scouting for me. And I just give them some tips, you know, look for rooms that have space. Listen for any unwanted noises and clap your hands and tell me if you hear echo. If you explain that to your client, then they can go and do some location scouting for you, take some shots, some pictures, video shots, etc., and text it over to you so that you can kind of somewhat location scout remotely. Now, if your client isn't around to do that, or if you're going to a place to meet a client where neither one of you have been and neither one of you can go before the shoot, then you just have to be able to location scout the day you get there on the fly. Just walk around and figure it out right then and there. But it just helps if you can do it ahead of time, if possible. I even sometimes with some of my bigger clients, are we, we take location scouting to a whole nother level where we are not even looking at using their buildings, but we want to go rent buildings. We did a shoot uh, two years ago for one of my biggest clients, the same client I'm, I'm doing the shoot for next week. And for that project, we knew that we were going to need a 
place that could give us six different looks for six different interviews. And we were flying people in from all over the country for this project. And the CEO was going to be there. It was a high dollar project with a lot of high profile people. And so we needed it to look as good as possible. And so finding a place that had six really different looking spots, because we wanted all six places to look like they were completely different from one another, almost as if we went to each state to film these individual people, because we didn't want it to look like they were all there in one place. So we had to find a place that had six different looks, six different areas we could film in. And all six areas had to be spacious. They had to have a lack of reverb, and they had to have a lack of unwanted noise, so that we could create six unique looking images that came across very polished, both audibly through the sound as well as through the looks, the visual appeal, et cetera. And so to find that was actually pretty challenging. I know six doesn't sound like a lot, but it's a lot. We location scouted for days in person and online, calling different places. We looked at all kinds of different studios. We looked all over to find a, a place that would give us these six different looks. And we finally found a building in Austin and we paid out the nose for it way over five, five figures to rent this building. But it was the perfect building because it had six locations that allowed us to have six different looks. And we rented the whole building out for an entire day. And we were able to control the sound. We were able to control the lighting. We were able to control everything. And so the day of whenever the shoot came, um, it, it was easy. Like we, I mean, it was a lot of work, but we knew everything we were going to do. We knew every room we were going to be in. We knew who was going to be in those rooms and when they were going to be in those rooms. We had an allocated an X amount of time for setup for each interview and then X amount of time to shoot each interview. And I want to talk about that for a minute. When I shoot an interview, I do my very best to give myself an hour and a half to two hours of setup time. That gives me time to figure out where the cameras are going to go, what the angles are going to be on the cameras, which focal lengths I'm going to use, etc. Sometimes I know or at least have an idea of what's going to happen if I location scout in person. Like at this um, at this building, we saw it in person. So I kind of knew going in what I was going to do. But I still needed time to set up the cameras, set up the, the lenses and the angles. I needed time to stage it. We brought in a staging company that helped us stage every room that we were going to film in, but we wanted some control over it because the staging company, I mean, they're good at what they do, but we had in our heads our own vision of what we wanted it to look like. So we had to have some control over the the decorations and, and the props and things. And then we need a lot of time to figure out the lighting because lighting is huge. And we're going to talk about lighting today, but lighting is, is huge in interviews, you know, and, and not just like, so you can have light, so it's not dark, but but lighting artistically. Light, I said earlier, like lighting is my paintbrush. The camera is my canvas. Lighting is my paintbrush. So you need time to figure out lighting. And then on top of that, we needed to get the boom mic set up, etc. So when I do an interview for anyone, I always ask for an hour and a half to two hours of setup time. So I have plenty of time to work through all of those things to make sure I'm fully ready to go by the time the person steps up for the interview. And so for this particular place, we already knew where everyone was going to be, but we still had to stage it with the staging company. We still had to set up the lights, et cetera, and get everything uh, ready to go. So even though going in, I already knew where I was going to be, I still needed an hour and a half to two hours of setup time. And then that only gave me like a 30 minute window to film 
the interview because then we're two and a half, like say, say it takes us two hours to set up and 30 minutes to film. That's two and a half hours per person times six people. Think about how long that is. I mean, two and a half times six is 15 hours. It's 15 hours. It doesn't include teardown. So you can see it adds up really fast. So I brought in a production assistant who helped me to be able to move the lighting and sound equipment and all that stuff so we could move really quickly. But that kind of gives you an idea on, oh, six interviews. It doesn't sound like a big deal. But yeah, it is a big deal. You have to have six different locations that work really well. You have to the light and stage, all six of them, and have enough time left over to actually record the interviews and then move all your stuff to the next spot and do it all over again. So it's a lot of work. That that was like that was like a 17-hour day, something like that, just between like arrival, shooting, and teardown. So it takes a while, but I try to give myself a minimum of an hour and a half to two hours to set up for an interview. Sometimes you're not going to have that. In the case of like when I was shooting Trout Fest, like I talked about earlier, I stuck a lot on some people, shot a handheld interview. I mean, I had 10 minutes 15 tops in those interviews, but they aren't polished. They look nothing like this project that I just got through talking about where we rented out this building and we had a lot of money poured into it and it looks like a lot of money was poured into it. But if you want to know, like, how do you get something to look polished? It starts by picking a good location and then giving yourself adequate time to set everything up. Now that we've talked about locations, I next want to talk about audio because audio might be something that you have to work around if your location isn't perfect. If there's reflections, if there's unwanted background noise, those are things you have to work around in order to make your project not only look good, but sound good. So one of the first steps into shooting a better interview when it comes to audio is the mic choice. My ideal microphone is going to be a boom mic for most interviews. Now, if you're shooting something like that event for Trout Fest I was talking about where I just stuck a lob on some people, that's that's one thing. But if you're shooting a polished interview, I prefer boom mics if I can. And a large part of that is just the sound. I love the way boom mics sound. They, they're isolated. They have a, a pickup pattern that is directional and as long as you have that mic pointed at the person's mouth that you're, you know, that you're filming, or if it's, you know, two people, you have two mics, then as long as your mics are pointed at their, at your subject's mouths, you're going to capture what they say in a richer, cleaner, more powerful way than if you're using a lav mic. Most lavs are omnidirectional. And I did a podcast on on all of this. So if you if you want to learn more about audio, there's actually a podcast I did a while back, a couple years back called, um, I think it's something like interview, how to capture better sounding uh, interviews or something like that. Go look for that podcast because that will help you um, learn a little bit more about what I'm briefly touching on here. But the idea is that lav mics are typically going to be omnidirectional. Omni meaning that they are all encompassing. They're, they're capturing everything that's around them, up, down, left, right, etc. So lav mics are great if you're filming an event or if someone is walking and, and you can't stick a boom operator in front of them. They're great because if someone turns their head to the left or the right, it, it may not sound as good as if you know they're speaking right over the lav, but the lav will still capture it because the lav is capturing everything in an omnidirectional pattern. The downside of that is that it's not isolated and focused in on just the voice. So yeah, you might pick up 
the person who's speaking's voice, but you're also going to pick up a lot of other noises. So if you're in a room that has other things going on, or if you're outside, for example, where there's birds and planes and cars and stuff, you're going to have a, a harder time isolating the person's audio with the lav mic that's omnidirectional because it's going to pick up their audio, but it's also going to pick up everything else. Now, the, the closest audio, which is the person's voice, will still sound the loudest and the clearest, but you're still going to have other background noises that bleed in more than if you're using a directional mic. Now, there are lavs that have more of a directional pickup pattern that are more like a cardioid pickup pattern, which is more directional, but they are not going to be as forgiving if the person moves or turns their head to the left, to the right, etc. Just in general, most people are going to have omnidirectional mics. Most mics, when you buy like a, a wireless transmitter and receiver combo, most stock lavs are going to be omnidirectional. And most aftermarket lavs, if you buy Sankin, Countryman, etc., they're usually going to be omnidirectional. Again, there are some different pickup patterns, but most are going to be omnidirectional. Again, great for vents, great for things where uh, people are moving and might turn their head one way or another way and you still need to capture it and have it sound good and you can't have a boom operator. It's great for all of that, but it's never going to sound as directional, as clean, as powerful, as pure as a, a mic that is on a boom that has a tighter pickup pattern. So for most interviews, if I can, I'm going to use a boom mic. Now, that's not always going to work. You know, when I was shooting that event, I was talking about for Trout Fest, that was a pro bono project. I didn't have a sound operator there, and I'm not going to take the time to put a, a boom up on a C-stand for something I'm just running around shooting pro bono, you know? So for something like that, I'm going to throw a lob on someone and call it a day. Plus, I actually didn't mind the background noise because the background noise was the crowds and the people that were at the event. And so I don't mind some of that bleeding into the mic because it kind of brings life to the project. Earlier in the podcast, I say that I said that your location can bring life to the project if it's very lively or it can make a project sound dull if it's a very dull place. And so if I was shooting in a crowd of people covering like an event, a lob mic that's going to take in some of that crowd noise is going to make it feel more lively when the person's talking. Now, it can be challenging if their audio isn't super loud or powerful, then you might have a hard time pulling their audio out of that background noise. But if they've got a pretty rich, powerful voice that you will still hear over the crowd noise, having some of that crowd noise bleed into the mic isn't the end of the world. So is it the end of the world to use a lav mic? Not always. Sometimes in that case, it can actually be used to your advantage. It can also be used to your advantage if you can't have a boom operator and you are shooting a commercial project, for example, or if you are, um, or, or if you have a boom operator, but you want to use a wider lens sometimes, or even if you're like, if I'm shooting interviews, you know, by myself and I don't have a boom operator, I'll just put a boom up on a C stand and do, do my own booming. It's no big deal. I do it all the time. In fact, most interviews, I, I set up booms myself and just run a boom uh, on my own on a C-stand. But if you're shooting a wide shot, you might not be able to do that because you might see the mic in, in the camera. Now, there are some projects where you might be okay with the mic being in the camera. Maybe that's an aesthetic choice. You want to show some of the equipment that's being used. I see that sometimes, and it looks good. But if you don't want to see the mic... If you use a wide lens, you might have to use a lav. So there are definitely times where you might need to use a lav, even if it's just, you know, you, you don't have a lot of time and you have to like 
get someone's interview and then take the mic off and give it to someone else and then take it off them and give it to someone else, take it off of them and you're by yourself and you don't have a sound guy, then in that case, a lot might be the right choice. However, if you're in a, in a, in a situation where you're trying to get a very polished, very good looking interview, I usually will default to a boom because a directional mic is going to give you richer, powerful, better sounding audio than an omnidirectional mic. Now, one of the benefits of using a directional mic is that it's going to reject sound that's coming from the left or the right. And the more directional the mic is, the more side sounds it's going to reject. A shotgun mic, especially ones with really tight pickup patterns, are going to do a great job of rejecting noise on the sides and are going to really be laser focused on what's in front of them. Now, pro tip, if you don't know this already, the closer your mic is to the sound, the better. Like the number one way to capture good audio is to have your mic as close to the person that's speaking as possible. That's the number one thing you can do. You can have a really expensive shotgun mic, for example, and if you have it three and a half feet away from the person who's speaking, a very cheap couple hundred dollar shotgun mic that is a foot away from the person is probably going to sound a lot better because it's all about how close you can get. It's a game of inches. The closer you are, the better. That's why when you watch like a news conference, you're constantly seeing boom operators trying to get their mics as close to the person who's speaking as possible because the closer they get, the better. So it's a battle, right? Where you're trying to get your mic close, but you're trying not to let it get in the frame. So it's something you got to think of. Um, but whenever you are recording audio with a directional mic, you're going to be rejecting a lot of the side sounds and are really going to be focusing on what's in front of the mic. And that is how you pick up the tighter, more directional audio. Now, there's a few challenges that come with that. The more directional the mic is, like a shotgun mic that has a really long reference tube, the downside of that is it's going to potentially have a harder time with reverb. And so if you're in a room that has a lot of echo or reverb, a shotgun mic is the worst mic that you could possibly choose to use because it is going to pick up what's in front of it, but it's also by design going to pick up some audio behind it. So it might reject all the sound coming from the sides, but it's going to pick up audio on the back side of the mic as well as the front side of the mic. And so what will happen is if, if there's a lot of echo in a room or a lot of reverb in a room, when someone's talking, the shotgun mic will pick up their sound waves the second it leaves their mouth, but the sound waves will travel and eventually bounce off the walls of the room, which creates that echo or that reverb. And so as those sound waves bounce around the room, the back of the mic will pick it up. And now you have reverb or echo in your shotgun mic audio, and it sounds really bad. It sounds like you're talking inside of a styrofoam cup. So when you're recording indoors, if there's any sort of reverb in that room, you don't want to use a shotgun mic. In fact, a good rule of thumb is not to use a shotgun mic indoors at all because then there's no risk. Now, if you are in a room and there's just no reverb, you clap your hands and there's nothing, no echo, it's just dead quiet. Use a shotgun mic. It's fine. In fact, I'll use a shotgun mic if I'm recording a voiceover. A lot of times indoors, we'll go into like a closet, like a walk-in closet that's got a lot of clothes and carpet. Because if you clap your hands, like in my walk-in closet, if I clap my hands, there's no reverb or echo. So we can record voiceovers in my walk-in closet and it sounds amazing. Cars are another place. Usually cars don't have any reverb. So if I'm with a client and we're recording a voiceover for a project and I want their voice to be the voiceover, not a paid VO, VO artist, we'll go in a vehicle 
and turn the vehicle off and we'll just sit in the vehicle and record their audio. I'll have like a pistol grip with a shotgun mic on it and I'll record their audio in the vehicle. It sounds great because there's no reverb. But when you're filming an interview inside, there's almost always going to be some level of reverb. You're very rarely going to find a room that has no reverb at all. It's all about what rooms have the least amount of reverb. But if you want to help control the way reverb sounds in your audio, switch to a different mic. So a shotgun mic is great for interviews, but really, if you're going to use them indoors, it's only in spaces that have little to no reverb at all. Otherwise, if you want to use a shotgun mic for interviews, use them outside. That's where they shine. They're great outside because they're extremely directional and they're not going to pick up a lot of outside unwanted noises. It doesn't mean you won't hear anything, but they will do the best job of any mic at rejecting other sounds that aren't coming from directly in front of it. So I use a shotgun mic if I'm booming outside. Inside, I use a cardioid or supercardioid. Those are great choices for indoor booming because they are directional like a shotgun mic, but the, if you look at the mic themselves, they're much shorter. They don't have the this, this, this super long reference tube that a shotgun mic has. And as such, they don't pick up a lot of reverb on the backside. So if you are in a room that has reverb or echo, which most rooms are gonna have reverb to some, to some extent, a cardioid or super cardioid mic is gonna do a much better job of still being directional of still picking up the person who's speaking really well the way a shotgun mic would, but without all of the unwanted reverb um, on the backside. Now, it's still going to pick some up. It's still going to have some, but it's going to sound much more pleasing and much more natural. So when I'm inside, as a rule of thumb, I pretty much never use a shotgun mic. Unless I'm doing a voiceover, I almost never use a shotgun mic in, in, inside. I'm pretty much always defaulting to a super cardioid or a cardioid. And I, I reserve the shotgun mic to either on-camera nat sounds, external booming outside, or to voiceovers. Now, the difference between a cardioid and a supercardioid is a supercardioid is going to be more in between a shotgun mic and a cardioid. So you have a shotgun mic is extremely directional, but <clears throat> is very bad with reverb. You're going to have a, a cardioid mic, which is not as directional, it's still directional, but not quite as much, but it's much better with reverb. A supercardioid is kind of in the middle. Most of the time, I'm going to default to supercardioid because you get a nice, tight pickup pattern. Sounds rich and powerful. The mic doesn't have to be... I mean, you still want it to get as close to the person as possible, but it doesn't have to be as close as a cardioid to still sound as rich and powerful. Um, yet, it it handles reverb much better than a shotgun mic. So most of the time inside, I'm going to default to a supercardioid. But if I'm in a room that's just horrible with reflections, then I'll go with a cardioid because it's going to handle reflections the best. So shotgun mics, horrible with reflections. Cardioid mics, cardioid mics, great with reflections. Supercardioid mics, kind of somewhere in between. That's what I typically default to. So that's some food for thought. Now, there's a lot of reason to have a variety of mics in your bag. So hopefully this will kind of give you um, some, some food for thought there. It's great to have different mics for different situations. There's no such thing as one mic fits all. So I encourage you to have some wobs, have a shotgun mic, have a cardioid and a super cardioid in your bag. That's a hard word to say. Have that in your bag. And if you do, you'll be able to handle a wide variety of situations. Um, and and if, if you don't know this, it's just one quick tip. Audio equipment is really, it, it really is has a point of diminishing returns, meaning that the better 
the better the audio gear is, the more it's going to cost, obviously. And there is a certain point that I would suggest starting at. Like I don't, I tell most people, if you're going to buy wireless mics, for example, don't go with Rode. Don't buy the Rode Video Mic Goes. Don't. Because they're not the best. They're, they got built-in internal batteries, which is an awful choice for professional use. What do you do when your batteries die? You got to be able to change batteries. If you can't change batteries in your mic, it's not a professional mic. And that's just my opinion. Plus, they don't work off of the same type of wavelengths that a wireless, a typical wireless mic will work off of. They work more off of a digital wavelength. And I, I don't like that. You want something that's going to have more of a radio wavelength, something that's going to do a better job of picking up audio at a distance and not having interference from things like cell phones, etc. So I, I do think there is a point of which audio gear goes from being consumer to professional. And like one example is when you go from like a Rode Video Mic Pro, which is a consumer mic, to something like a Sennheiser G3 or G4 or whatever we're at now, or like the Sony UWP series, those are your are where you're starting to get into actual professional audio equipment. However, at that point, it becomes a, a point of diminishing returns where you can spend a lot more money and step into something like Electrosonics, which will cost substantially more money than something like a Sennheiser or Sony. And yeah, they're better in terms of they're more durable. They're going to reject radio frequencies uh, issues better than something like a Sennheiser or Sony. But do they sound better? No, not really, because it all comes down to the microphone. The, the law itself is where the audio comes from. The body pack transmitter and receiver, all that does is carry a signal. The actual audio comes from the law itself. So if you buy a Sennheiser G3 or G4, whatever it is today, I think it's G4s now, the stock law that it comes with is what's creating the sound. If you want to increase your sound, you don't have to go to Electrosonics, $2,000 set of mic, you know, a transmitter receiver to have better sound. All you have to do is upgrade your lav. So you can get a tram, a countryman, a Sankin. I run Sankin COS 11Ds with my Sony UWP mics, uh, transmitters and receivers, but you could buy any of those brands and they're going to be an upgrade over the stock lav. And that's what's going to change the sound, not the transmitter or receiver. They just carry a signal. So it becomes a point of diminishing returns, right? I think when you step up from like the road or the deities or things like that, and you step up into something like a Sennheiser or Sony, you're starting to get into the professional you know, level of mics. However, you don't have to go much higher than that to get great quality. At that point, it just comes down to what your stock lob is going to be. I'm not saying there's not a reason to have electrosonics, but for most people, it doesn't make sense. So you can get something like a Sony or a Sennheiser and start stepping into the professional world of audio. And if you want to increase or upgrade your quality of sound, just look at your aftermarket mic choices. Same is true when it comes to like shotgun mics and cardioid mics and super cardioid mics. There are, you know, some that are obviously very prosumer, but as soon as you start getting into something like a good example would be um, the Rode, uh, what is it, the NTG3, the, and, and, and even the NTG4 and NTG5, those are not very expensive mics. And I think the NTG5, I mean, it's pretty affordable. And that's a pretty nice microphone. If you buy that mic, you're going to get great sound. Now, I run Sennheiser MKH booms, and they're very expensive. It's like $1,500 for, for each of my booms. And that's a lot of money for a mic. But you don't have to spend that. You can get something like a Rode NTG5 and have 
pretty comparable quality, to be honest. Now, I love my Sennheisers, and, and they have a certain sound to them that I like. That's why I bought them. But you don't have to do that. It's a point of diminishing returns. You get to a certain level at some point where you can drop two or three times the amount of, of money on a new you know, set of mics, but the difference in quality might be only 10% different. So you don't feel like you have to go drop $2,000 on... Uh, on a single microphone or on a single transmitter and receiver set to have good audio. Look for mics that have, if it's wireless mics that have rechargeable batteries and that run not on any type of Bluetooth or Wi-Fi band. You know, you, you don't want that. But get into something like a Sony or a Sennheiser and then worry about your aftermarket lobs to change the sound quality. And then and for booms, you know, look for something in that mid-price category, that three, four, five hundred dollar range, six hundred dollar range, and that's going to get you into a pretty good boom. You don't have to drop much more than that to have a difference in quality. I mean, you can spend more money, and yeah, you can increase the quality, the quality to an extent. But again, you don't have to drop a thousand dollars to gain ten percent of, you know, of, of an increase in sound quality. Most people don't need to do that. So get you something in that four, five, six hundred dollar range and call it good, and get you know, get you one. Uh, that's a shotgun mic, get you one that's a cardioid and get one that's a super cardioid and you'll have a nice little set for not a ton of money to capture good sound in a wide range of environments without having to jump into something like um, the Sennheiser MKH line, which I have, uh, or, or going to Electrosonics or something like that. So having a variety of mics, but knowing that you don't have to drop tens of thousands of dollars is a good a good way to look at it so that you can approach any situation and have good sound for any situation, but without having to drop 10 grand to get there. Um, and again, lobs do have their place. So I do say get a lob because if you're shooting a, a wide angle shot and you can't slip a boom in there, or if you're in a, in a quick run and gun scenario and you can't use a boom for whatever reason, then having lobs is also good. So I definitely recommend that. I don't think most people need a cardioid, like a directional lob. Just stick with the standard omnidirectional and you'll be fine. But boom when you can. One more thing I will say is I typically run a lob underneath someone's clothes while also running a boom up top because it's great to have a backup source of audio. You never know. You never know when something might happen and you think you got great sound on your shotgun mic only to come home and realize there was something wrong with your XLR cable and maybe you're, you know, you were monitoring the audio with your headphones but you didn't catch it, you know? Or maybe there's a, a, a little bit of pulsing that you know, that noise, you know, maybe you get some of that in your boom mic on accident and it doesn't sound good. So having a, having a, lob mic as a backup source of audio is a really great way to go. So typically when I'm filming interviews, I've got a boom over the person I'm filming and I've got a shotgun mic underneath their clothes hidden as a backup audio source. And you definitely want to hide it, man. Uh, there are some times where you cannot hide a mic. Like when I did that trout fest thing, it was all pro bono. I'm not taking the time to hide mics. I'm throwing mics at people and calling it a day. But a more polished interview is never going to have a mic in it. So you want to hide the mic if possible, unless it's an, unless you're going for an aesthetic where you're showing camera gear. Like that is an aesthetic where you're showing like a, a behind the scenes shot of a camera guy and, and, and his camera and some lights and some mics. Unless you're specifically going for something like that, hide your lobs if you can because it looks better. Unless it's, again, just something like run and gun pro bono like I did for Trout Fest where it really doesn't matter. But more polished projects will not show mics. So definitely hide your mics. There's a wide range of ways you can hide lob mics. 
just go to Google and look for different ways to hide lav mics. The biggest thing is making sure that you don't pick up clothes rustling because that'll kill your audio instantly. Um, And that is more dangerous when you start hiding mics, but that's something to be aware of. One last thing I'll say is when you start booming two people, like with two booms, you're going to run the risk of having some phase issues where if person A is talking and person B is not, person B's mic is still going to be picking up person A's audio, even though the mic is pointed at person B. It's just going to be picking it up as like a bleed. It's going to bleed into their audio. So you're going to hear it almost like a background noise. And the issue with that is in post, you'll hear an echo where person A is talking, but person B's mic is also having person A's voice in it just more muted and quieter and and from a different angle or distance. So it'll create echo and will sound like, again, like you're talking inside of a tin can or a styrofoam cup and you don't want that. So if you're booming two people, you really want to pay attention in post and take the time to every time person A talks, mute person B. And you don't want to do it like harshly. You want to like keyframe it, but you want to key person B's audio down until they start to talk. And then you key it back up and you key person A's down so that they're never their mics are never on at the same time. There are ways that you can position the mics to help. There are ways that, sorry about that. My wife just came home with the kids. There are ways that you can position the mics to help not uh, pick up as much bleed, but it's still something to really pay attention to because if you pick up bleed from one person's mic, uh, audio into the other person's mic, it will sound bad in post. Now, fortunately, um, there are some audio recorders out there. Like I run, um, the sound devices mix pre six, two, the specific reason I have that exact recorder is because you can buy a plugin for it that allows you to auto mix mics and it works insanely well and all at 32 bit float. But what happens is essentially it can auto detect when person A is talking and it can, it can quickly, but gradually and softly put their audio levels up where, where you can hear it. And then it will at the same time, quiet person B's automatically. It's like keyframing in post, but it does it for you in real time. And then when person B starts to talk, it'll immediately bring their mic level back up and it'll quiet person A's back down. And it does exactly what you're going to do in post, but in real time. But it also saves their original non-mixed audio as well. So you have person A's audio, you have person B's audio, and then you have the mix that's auto-keyed, essentially, and it sounds amazing and it works extremely well. So I run the sound devices recorders when I'm booming more than one person specifically just for that exact reason, because it saves me hours in post. Because if I'm doing a bunch of interviews and I'm booming up multiple people at the same time, it's going to take me a long time to keyframe all that in post. And unfortunately, there's not a really good program out there that does it automatically. You can try noise gates and things, but really the best way to fix it is to do it in real time so that you don't have to do it in post because the noise gates and stuff never work really that well. So you're, you'll find yourself in post spending hours keyframing people's audio up and down and up and down when you could just have it done in real time and already be done with it. So I run the sound devices recorders just for that reason. Now, Zoom on like their, I think it's the Zoom, is it the F6 or whatever it is? I need to look that up right here because I can't remember. Zoom F6. Yeah, F6. The Zoom F6 has a similar feature, but 
I saw some tests that Curtis Judd did. And Curtis Judd is a great guy for learning more about audio and like looking at reviews and stuff. Curtis did a test of the Zoom F6 versus the sound devices. The Zoom F6 worked pretty well, but the sound devices recorder with the plug-in definitely was better. So that's why I went with the sound devices Mix Pre 6 too. So when I'm booming up multiple people, I'm running that and I'm, I'm running the auto mix so that in post that's already done for me and I don't have to worry about it. And I still have backup tracks in case it ever did a bad job, but it never does a bad job. It always does a good job. But anyway, those are things to think about. If you are booming up multiple people at once and you don't have something like a sound devices recorder with that plugin, and you don't want to spend a bunch of time in post keying one person's audio down versus another, then you might be better off going with lav mics for that situation because omnidirectional lav mics don't sound as bad when one person's audio bleeds into the other. You're not gonna have as much of a, of a phasing issue as you will with boom mics. It'll still be there, but it will sound much better. So if you are booming up a panel of people, but you don't have time to fix it in post, and you don't have a recorder that can auto do it for you, then in that situation, you might wanna consider running lobs. And I'm actually doing that next week. Um, most of our interviews are gonna be single people, the, the seven or eight interviews we're doing next week, almost all of them are gonna be um, single people being boomed up one at a time, except for the very first day we're filming a panel of three people at once. And, and, and rather than run three booms and have to deal with all that, I'm just going to lob them up because it's much simpler. And uh, I'm, doing, I'm actually going to do the auto mix with the lobs, but I'm going to run lobs in that situation instead of booms. So there are situations, again, where lobs still make sense. And that is one of them where I'm micing up three people at once. But again, if you can go with some sort of boom inside and even outside, use lobs only when you have to, or at the very least use them as backup tracks, uh, but try to go with booms if you can and be careful or mindful of phasing issues if you're booming more than one person at once. Now that we've covered location and audio, I wanna start talking about lighting. After that, we'll get into cameras and then we'll get into um, talking a little bit about how to direct an interview. So when it comes to lighting, I think that lighting is the most interesting part of an interview to me personally, more than what the person's saying, more than the emotions, if it's an emotional interview, more than the location, more than the audio. To me, lighting is where interviews come to life. I love lighting interviews. And again, you're not always going to get to light an interview. When I shot that Trout Fest thing, I keep referring to it because it's a great example, but I wasn't lighting that, you know, stuck a lob on someone, shot it, handheld, moved on with my life. But when you can, when you are filming an interview, lighting an interview, even outside, is an amazing form of art. And it's a great way to really hone your skills in terms of lighting. Because if you can learn how to light for an interview, how to soften light, how to control light, how to diffuse light, how to add negative fill, how to add accent lights or practicals, if you can learn those things for interviews, that will carry into the way that you light all your other shots beyond just interviews. But if you have an interview that not only sounds good, but if it looks really good in terms of lighting and location, then it will jump out to people and really stand out as being professional. It'll feel high-end and it'll get their attention and more than likely make them more interested in watching than if it looks pretty poorly done or flat or anything like that. So lighting is a great way to be artistic when it comes to interviews. And how, again, how I look at it is the camera is my canvas, lighting is my paint. So when I look at filming an interview, let's just start with inside. If I'm filming an interview inside, when I'm location scouting, one of the things I'm paying attention to is 
what kind of natural light is already pre-existing in the room. If there is natural window light, for example, is it floor to ceiling windows? Is it a small window? Is it enough window light where it's actually providing some natural light that can go onto our subject? Or is it just something that's going to be in the background? Those things are important. If you don't know what it means to motivate light, and I have a whole podcast that talks about lighting. So if you want to learn more about lighting, go listen to that podcast. But Briefly, I'll summarize a few of these things by saying and starting with motivating light. If you don't know what motivating light is, it means when you add a light of your own, an artificial light, you want it to be motivated somehow by a naturally lit source. So if you have window light and you put someone in the room and you have the window to their right, you can add a light also to the right and use that light to add additional light to your subject. But if you added the light to the left, it's not motivated from the window. If you add it to the right where the window is, it's motivated by the window. So it makes sense. It makes sense that there would be this daylight colored light shining on the right side of the person's face because there's a window there. Even if you can't see the window, the audience knows that there's something over there because naturally there's some light coming into the room. So they just assume subconsciously that it's probably a window. So if you're adding light to your subject artificially, you want to motivate it from the same side of the room as the window, for example, so it feels natural, not like it's some random light coming out of nowhere. Same thing with like a background light. Like if I'm using a hair light, sometimes I try to, well, not sometimes, most of the time I try to find a way to motivate my hair light. So let's say I'm filming an interview and we have a, a floor lamp that either a staging company brought in or we brought in, the client brought in, or maybe it was already just in the office building somewhere and we grabbed it out of a room and stuck it into uh, the backdrop of our interview. Well, that light can be what's called a practical light, meaning it is a light that is in the shot. You will see the lamp in the shot. It's there by choice, we put it in there because we want to see the lamp. And so that's a practical, but you can add an accent light and splash it on the wall and motivate it from the lamp, or you can add a hair light and splash it on the person and motivate it from the lamp, all again being motivated by the lamp. So let's say you have, um, let's just say we have a room, with, we'll stick with our theme here. Let's say we have a room and we have a window to the right and we've added a big bright light to the room from the side, same side as the window, so it's being motivated, okay? And then let's say we have a lamp on the back left side of the person right behind them, okay? Maybe it's behind like a coffee table or something. That's our practical. Well, now we can take a hair light, and let's say the lamp is um, 3200 Kelvin. It's a incandescent look, kind of that yellowish, orangish look. Well, we can take something like an Aperture 60X. We can dial it in to a similar Kelvin color around 3200, something that looks close to the lamp, and we can shine that on the back of the person, like aim it out of frame where you don't see it, but aim it at the back left side of the person, shining on the back of their hair and their skin and kind of outlining the back of their body. That is our rim light or our hair light, but it's motivated. It's not some random light that's just randomly outlining or backlighting the person. It's motivated from the lamp, and it's the same color. We set the color on our bicolored spotlight to make it look like it's coming from the lamp. So it makes sense. It's motivated by the lamp. We could take another Aperture 60X and we could point it at the wall and, and soften it with a diffusion cloth or like a small modifier and just add a nice splash of yellow 3200-ish orangish colored light on the wall set to the same temperature as the light that's backlighting the person. And now the wall has a splash of color on it that looks like 
it's coming from the lamp. So that we've just motivated an accent light on the wall and a rim or hair light on the person, all from our practical light, which is the lamp. And then on the other side, on the person's right side, right frontal side, for example, is the window. And we have a big, bright Aperture 600D shining on the person with a big old modifier like a Light Dome 150 or a Light Dome 2 that is softening that light on the same side as the window. So it's motivated by the window. That is a key light that's motivated from the window. That is a rim or hair light that is motivated from the lamp, which is a practical light. And then we have an accent light splashing on the wall that's also being um, motivated by the practical light, which is the lamp. So that is a cool way right there, which is three lights to already kind of start lighting our scene. And so then let's just say we want to add another light somewhere. We want to add a light to the front of the person, but it's not being motivated by anything because the window's on the right side of the room. But we want there to be light on the other side of the person. We don't want it to be as strong as the light that's on the right side, but we still need a little bit of splash of light because there's too much shadow on the person's face. So let's say we need to add another light. Well, that light, maybe it's not motivated, or maybe it is. Maybe it's motivated from like the ceiling light. Maybe there's a light in the ceiling that's on. Or maybe there isn't another light on. We want it to just look like it's naturally bouncing, coming from light that's in the room from the window, even though it's not on the same side as the window. So we can add a light to the other side of the person's face, but make it much softer, much more subtle than the light that's on the same side as the window. That way, it's not very noticeable. We don't want people to be like, why is there a light on this on his face on one side where the window is, but there's also light on his face from this other side. It wouldn't make sense subconsciously. It just look what it would look off or staged. But if you just take a, a, a smaller light or even a big light, but you have it turned way down and extremely diffused to soften the light, you can have that on the other side of the person's face to add a little bit of fill. Not enough where it's noticeable, but just enough to add a little bit of fill and to make it look well exposed on camera, but not to the point where it's noticeable to the audience. That's how you can have an unmotivated light and add it in. Something that's subtle, not really noticeable, but is there helping to lighten your exposure. So that's an example of how we can use light to paint a room. We could even add other lights if we wanted. If we had a, you know, like a, 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 a small light that we wanted to add behind a fish tank that's in the background. We could take some Aperture MCs and put them behind the fish tank and backlight the water in the fish tank if we wanted to make that fish tank really pop and stand out on screen if we wanted to. You know, there are all kinds of things you can do, but adding accent lights and, and practical lights and then using um, your big lights being motivated from some other light source and just thinking about those things, they will help you paint an image that looks visually appealing and that makes sense to the viewer subconsciously. It just looks well-balanced. And that's that's the goal in lighting, is you wanna use lights that are subtle and soft for the most part, but that add a pleasing look to the room. You, you could have an interview, I've had interviews where I've used like 10 different lights at one time, all over the place. I, I've, had inter, I've had an interview once where I had like an Aperture 600D two Aperture 600Ds on one side of the room where some windows were to really brighten the exposure of the room. We'll get to that in a minute. And then I had like a, a, a motivating lamp way out in the background with like a practical in it. I had some light tubes under a stairwell that added some soft light under the stairwell, not enough to really be noticeable, but enough where there's just a little bit of light under the st stairwell that kind of felt like it could have come from the window. I mean, we had lights all over the place. So I've used up to like 10 lights in a room before, even more, just trying to really bring a room to life. So thinking about 
your interview and, 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 and as, a, as a blank canvas on your camera, like your camera is being a blank canvas and using light to paint that canvas, that's a great way to approach lighting an interview and thinking about how you can make it really pop and stand out on screen. It's really important, though, that you understand not only things like motivating light, but also how to soften light. You can use things like light boxes, light domes, lanterns, uh, scrims with really thick diffusion cloth. But the idea is that you pump a bright light source into some sort of material that softens the light. It could even be something like unbleached muslin, which is this fabric that's really hard to shoot light through unless the light's extremely bright. However, you can bounce light off of it and it will create a subtle warm light, like a morning light. And so there are all kinds of things you can do to diffuse light, to soften light, to motivate light. But learning and understanding that will help you make an interview look better. So think about ways that you can add light to a scene, practicals, which are lights you see, accents, which are lights that are like splashed in random places. Could be fake morning light, like you might take an aperture 600D or 1200D and stick it outside of a window of a house, and you might shine it through the window, and then maybe you take a, a gobo or, or something similar to add fake window blind shadows, and you might throw that on the wall behind the person, and it might be, it might make it look like there are window blind shadows on the wall, but really it's just a big light that you're shining through a window and you're creating the shadows yourself using a gobo. There are all kinds of ways that you can play with light to add interesting effects that come across and stand out on screen. Like if you have a blank wall and it's kind of boring, but all of a sudden you throw a window light with some blind shadows on it, man, that could really make an image go from boring to looking really pleasing. So just thinking about ways you can add accent lights and practical lights and how you can motivate and soften and diffuse light are great ways to approach lighting an interview. Uh, and I highly encourage that you invest more money in lighting gear than you do your cameras and lenses and stuff because lighting gear is the number one way to make your image stand out. Lighting is far more important than your cameras or lenses or what picture profile you shoot in or how you color grade your stuff in post. Learning how to utilize light will help you stand out against your competition and will help uh, potential customers look at your work and, and feel like it's more expensive, more polished, and look at you as being more professional. Even if you're shooting on a $1,500 camera with a $500 lens, they don't have to know that. If they look at your work and, it, and it's well lit, it will stand out even if you have cheaper camera equipment. So always invest more in lighting than camera gear at first because lighting is far more important, especially for things you can control like interviews. And if you learn, again, to do this for interviews, you can apply these same concepts or themes to any other shots that you can control. Now, let's talk about some scenarios where maybe you might have a little bit more trouble controlling them. A good example might still be inside, but maybe you have a window that's in the background behind your subject and you don't wanna blow the window out. I don't like blowing windows out. Windows that are blown out look cheap to me. They don't look high budget. Windows that you can see out of, that looks more high budget. So how do you do that? How do you expose for a room and have a person in a room without blowing out the window? Well, it all comes down to a couple of creative options that you can decide to do that will help you either reduce the light of the window or add exposure to the room so um, that you can pump more light into the room. Well, those are the two ways that you approach it. And we'll start with the window one, cutting light. There are two ways you can cut lights if you have a window behind your subject. One is you can add gels to the window itself. That's not my favorite way because you have to buy the gels. You have to take like a squeegee and put them on the glass. If it's not on perfect, if there's bubbles, it could pop out and stand out on the camera. So I don't like using gels. Plus it's slow to put on. 
Another way that you can diffuse light on the window and, and, and reduce the light coming from the window is you can add ND cloth. I have some of this. So I have like some six foot by six foot or eight foot by eight foot scrims. Um, and I can take this cloth. It's almost like looking through screen on a screen door. And you can put it on the scrim and then you can hang the scrim like outside of the room on C-stand. So let's say you got a window, okay, and a living room and you're filming an interview in a living room and there's like a window outside and you don't want to blow the window out. Well, you could take two C-stands, go outside, sandbag them really well because you don't want the wind to blow them over, um, especially because the cloth is going to act like a giant sail. But you got to go outside, put a lot of sandbags on your C-stands and then you can put like the scrim uh, on the C-stands on maybe a C-stand on either side to really support it. And that scrim, which is just a frame, you can put ND cloth, one stop, two stop, et cetera, ND cloth. And what that will do, let's say you have a two stop ND cloth, is it's like putting a screen on the window and it's going to cut the exposure by two stops if it's a two, two stop ND cloth. If it's a one stop, it'll reduce the, the exposure of the window by one stop. But the idea is you're cutting light from the window so it's not as bright in the background and you have less risk of blowing it out. That's one way that you can go about it. And usually you won't see that screen looking material, that indie material. It's so fine. It's so thin. It does a good job of cutting light, but you really aren't, unless you're like focused on it, you're not going to see it, especially if it's kind of blurred out in the background, you won't notice it's there. And so the viewer will have no idea that you've diffused the window and reduced the exposure in the window, but that's one thing that you can do. Another thing that you can do, and this is my favorite, is just add a crap ton of light to the room. <laughs> that's my favorite way to do it. And it's it's my favorite way because it's the quickest way. So most of the time, if I'm in a scenario where I want windows in the background, and a lot of times I do want windows in the background because I think it looks nice. If you have a window in the background, it gives you a great um, a great excuse to motivate light behind the subject. It all because because you can motivate light behind the subject and have it daylight balance, for example, and it will look like it's coming from the windows. Plus, it just kind of accents the back of the frame and adds depth to the frame. But again, I don't want it to be blown out. So I do like incorporating windows into my work, especially really attractive ones like floor to ceiling ones. The challenge though, is if you're not gonna use ND cloth or some sort of gel, you have to bring the exposure up in the room. So this is how I do it. I would approach a room and I would figure out where my subject is going to be and I'd put either my production assistant there or the subject themselves if they're there early or my client or someone, I'd put them where the interviewer is gonna be. Uh, the interviewee is going to be. And what I would do is I would expose the shot for the windows. How can I expose the shot so the windows look good, not blown out? And when I do that, naturally, the subject, the person, is going to be way dark. But then I can start adding light to raise the exposure of the subject and the room so that I can raise the exposure where it's even. So I start by exposing for the windows, which is going to make the room and the subject dark, and then I add light into the room until the light looks and appears to be evenly exposed all the way across the board. Now you have to have really bright lights for this. You don't want to take a spotlight and just shine it on the person. I mean, you could do that and it would definitely add a lot of light to the person, but it, it'd be really harsh and it would look ugly. So to add soft light that's bright enough to raise the exposure of a room, but in a soft way, that requires very, very bright, powerful lights and, and a lot of big diffusion. So my favorite way to do this is I have two Aperture 600Ds and I'll either put on two Lantern 90s, which are these big lanterns that 
are kind of like a, they're kind of like the omnidirectional lav mic. Like it's a big circular ball, kind of like a lav mic head would be, but it's a diffuser that goes on top of your, your light. And it takes a big light to film, a, to fill a Lantern 90. They have regular not lanterns that are much, Aperture does that's much smaller than a Lantern 90. And you can use those with like a 300D. But if you want to fill a Lantern 90, you need a big light, something like a 600D or 1200D. Well, I like to take my two 600Ds and I'll put two Lantern 90s on the 600Ds. And I'll kind of point them up toward the ceiling and I'll just crank the exposure all the way to the max on my 600Ds. It's 100% on both. And now I've got a freaking ton of light being pumped into two lanterns that are softening that light. So it's adding a lot of bright, but yet diffused soft light to the room, thus raising the exposure of the entire room, but in a soft way. And I might point one at the ceiling and I might point one at the subject. So I'm adding exposure to the subject and adding ambient or, or just regular light to the room to add exposure to the room. So I might, I might not bounce them both off the ceiling. I might just do one on the subject, one on the ceiling, but the either way, either way, the idea is that I'm pumping a ton of freaking light into the room and I'm softening it. I might even, if, if, if the room is, is already naturally somewhat relatively bright, I might only take one lantern 90 and then I might take the other 600D and put a light dome on it and point that one at the person. But either way, I'm using big bright lights and a pumping light in the room. Now, if I set them both hundred percent and it's too bright, I can bring the light back down until it's evenly exposed, but you start by exposing for the windows, then add light to the room until the exposure looks good. So it takes really bright lights to do that. Sometimes I'll take my two 600Ds and I might make a book light, which is where you bounce light off of something like a silver reflector and it bounces off the reflector and then into like a scrim, for example, that has diffusion cloth, like one or two stop diffusion silk. So if I take two 600Ds and I shine them both at the same time, into a silver reflector. That's two 600 watt lights. If I max them out and shine both of them into the reflector, it's almost like having a single 1200D. And if I do that, it'll bounce off the reflector extremely freaking bright, and then it'll hit the diffusion cloth and then soften right back down, but add a ton of light to the room. That's another way that you can add a big soft light to your subject and to the room. So there's all kinds of ways to go about it. You can even add Fresnels to like make your light that you're bouncing into the reflector more center fused and, and appear brighter because it's more directional, but there's all kinds of things you can do. But the idea is that you want to try to add exposure to the room so that it's more evenly balanced and you're not blowing out the windows. Again, all of this comes down to art. It's all an art form. That's why I say lighting interviews is an art form because lighting is such a huge part of it. And if you take the time to think about how can I expose for the windows? How can I add accent lights? How can I add practical lights? How can I motivate light? If you take the time to do that, how can I diffuse it and soften it? Then you will create an image that looks really professional and really polished. And that's why lighting is such a huge part of the production cost of higher budget projects because lighting is the key to making a video stand out and looking good. You can also add things like negative fill. Sometimes I'll do that. I'll sneak in like this big black floppy that's eight foot tall and I'll stick that close to my subject because what it does is, is when light is on, like let's say I stick it on the left side of the subject, it will actually absorb light and create like a deadening of light on that side. So it's taking light away it's like absorbing it and taking it away and reducing light on one side of their face, creating a little bit of a shadow on their face or darker darkness on their face, which is a nice pleasing way if you want someone to not look completely bright. Maybe you want something a little more, I don't want to say dramatic, but maybe you want something just a little more 
a little more edgy where you have a little bit of light on one side but not as much on the other. You can use negative fill to soak up light on the other side by just hanging a big black cloth somehow like on a C-stand or something on the other side of their face and actually take light away from them um, to create contrast so that one side of the face has light and the other side does not. So that's another way that you can do that So uh, to, to create contrast or, or to change the way your interview looks. And there are some interview scenarios where that looks really, really nice, especially dock work. So I love lighting interviews. It's so artistic to me. And that's like everything I just explained is why I ask for an hour and a half to two hours minimum to set up for interviews because I want time to play with that stuff to figure out how to paint the room with light and control the light to make it look as good as I possibly can. Now, what do you do if you're outside? Well, if you're filming an interview outside, it's a little trickier. Well, actually, it's a lot trickier. I mean, we've already talked about the sound aspect and the fact that you can't control a lot of things that are happening. But one of the things that you really can't control is lighting. Again, you might have a day where it's perfectly sunny, but you might also have a day where there's a lot of clouds. And clouds coming in and out will dramatically change the way an interview looks. So my number one suggestion for filming interviews outside is to try to find a way to shoot in an area that's more likely to be balanced and less like the least likely to be affected by the sun and the changing clouds. And then from there, control what you can. A lot of people I know, for example, might say, hey, let's go film an interview under a tree, like in a shade tree at 10 o'clock in the morning or 11 o'clock in the morning. But I hate doing that because if you're in a shaded area and you're not using any lights at all and you're just naturally relying on what natural light is available, if you expose a person and under a shade tree, you're going to blow out the background. Even if you shoot with a, a camera that's got a high dynamic range, even if you don't blow out the background completely, it's going to be distractingly bright, right? So if I'm going to film outside, I typically don't want someone to stand in shade unless there's also shade in the background. If everything's shaded, that's that's fine. But if if there's shade and then there's bright stuff outside of the shade, I don't want it because I don't want to expose the person and then have the background look overly bright or even risk it being blown out. So one thing you can do in that scenario is put someone in either an area that's got all shade and nothing in the background that's not going to be in shade or put them in the sun. Now, if you put them in the sun, there are a few obstacles that come with that. It could be really harsh, like their skin could be really reflective to the sun, especially if it's not early in the morning or late in the evening. And then again, there's a lot of risk of clouds coming in and out, changing the exposure during the interview. And then on top of all that, you also run the risk of the person having like shadows on their eyes. If they're wearing a hat, there might be a lot of shadow on their face from the sun being up above them. And then on top of all that, they might be squinting, things like that. So there's a lot of risk of re recording interviews outside. So again, goes back to this is why I love recording interviews inside. However, sometimes you have to do what you have to do. If you're running a gun and you have no choice but to throw a lob on someone and just shoot the interview where they are, like I did at Trout Fest, fine, it is what it is. But if it's a polished commercial project and you're shooting it outside, you got to find a way to control what you can. So one thing that I like to do when I'm shooting outside is I try to diffuse the natural light. And I try to do it not early in the morning or late in the evening. And I know that sounds odd. Like normally you want to shoot in soft golden light, right? And I love shooting in soft golden light. But the problem is, let's say you're recording an interview and you think it's going to take like 30 minutes for the actual recording. The lighting at sunrise and sunset is changing constantly during that 30 minute window. 
it's constantly changing. So you might start at sunrise and it looks, you get your exposure nice and it looks all nice and good. But as the light continues to come up, the exposure not only changes, but the white balance starts to change because things will be kind of like a, like a reddish yellow color from sunrise. And then as it continues to rise, it starts to get a little bluer in color, eventually getting to daylight color. And so not only is the exposure changing during a sunrise, but so, so is the white balance. Same is true at sunset. If you're recording an interview at sunset, the sun is going down. It's going from a bluer color to more of a, of a yellow and then an orangish color. And then again, the exposure is changing as well. That's all bad. <laughs> so unless you're just throwing a lob on someone and you're going to get a five-second interview and then get out. Sorry for all these texts here. Unless you're going to record like a five-second interview with a lob and then move on. If you're going to do something polished outside, I actually don't like doing it first thing in the morning or last thing in the evening. But I also don't like doing it at high noon. So my target window is going to be like 9 o'clock to 11 o'clock, you know, um, or or 8 o'clock to 11 or 8, 8 to 10, something like that. And this is actual record times, like somewhere around there. Or if it's in the evening, I'll do late afternoon rather than evening before the sun starts to set. That way, the, 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 at least the white balance isn't changing. And the exposure could change because of cloud cover, but at least it's not changing from the sun coming up or going down. So by selecting a window of time that's, you don't want to wait till high noon, but if you select a window of time that's after sunrise or before sunset, you're gonna have a little more consistency. The next thing is you try to diffuse the natural light. So if the sun is, you know, let's say it's nine in the morning and you have the sun off to like the person's right, you can diffuse the sun so it doesn't appear as harsh. Now, how do you diffuse the sun? Well, you take two scrims, or excuse me, you take two C-stands, and again, you sandbag them like crazy, uh, and then you put like a scrim um, on some gobo arms on the C-stand, and again, that's gonna be like a sail in the wind now, so you got to really sandbag the crap out of those C-stands. But anyway, you create a sail, <laughs> essentially, by using two C-stands with sandbags, run some gobo arms, hold up a scrim, and have the sun in between, or the, excuse me, the scrim in between the sun and the subject. And the scrim, you might put like a two-stop diffusion cloth in it, like a two-stop super silk. And what that does is it's softening the sunlight as it hits the person's skin. So you're getting natural light on the person, but it's soft, so it doesn't it doesn't feel so harsh, right? It doesn't reflect and bounce off their skin in an ugly way. So if I want to film outside, I pick a target window of time that's not at sunrise or not at sunset, but also not at high noon. And then I do my best to use some sort of scrim to diffuse the light. You can also have a couple people that hold the scrim, but to me, that's a little risky because if they move at all, uh, it could affect anything. So I like to just have the scrim um, stationary on C-stands with gobo arms and just make sure that the scrim is in between the sun and the subject. You also can add a reflector on the opposite side. Now you could have someone hold the reflector like a PA, but again, that's kind of risky because if they move at all, the reflection could change. So what I like to do is I'll take another C-stand with a gobo arm and I might take like a four by four, four foot by four foot reflector and have it pointed on the opposite side of the person and have it like shining sunlight back into their face. But I might use like the white side of the reflector, not a silver, something that's soft. So it's like the light is hitting this soft white reflector and then is lightly bouncing diffuse soft light into their face to help even the exposure. So those are ways that you can diffuse light and then even bounce soft light naturally back onto your subject. You can also use lights outside and I do use lights outside, but it takes a heck of a powerful light because if you're going to battle natural sunlight, you need something crazy bright. To me, Aperture 600D is by far the minimum 
you can have to try to add a lot of light outside. So if you're outside and you are adding um, a, a scrim with a two-stop diffusion, like a super silk, and you're diffusing the natural sunlight, but you want to add light to the person and you don't want to use a reflector, you can use a light with something like a light dome. You just have to have a really freaking bright light. So aperture 600D or 200, two 600Ds paired together or one single 1200D would go a long way into helping you to add artificial light to your naturally lit scene, but be able to have it bright enough where it can, you know, actually be useful. Because if you're using something like a 300D or a 60X or something like that, you're, it's not going to be bright enough to add to really and truly add light to your subject. You need a really bright light outside, that, especially if you're going to soften it, which you want to soften it with diffusion. So you're going to need a really, really bright light in that scenario. So something like a 600D, uh, preferably two 600Ds or even a 1200D with soft diffusion on one side and then diffusing the sun with silk and scrims on the other is a good way to approach um, evening exposure. Um, you also can use that ND cloth I was talking about earlier that's, that looks kind of like screen door cloth. You can even use that to cut light behind a subject um, by a stop or two as well. So there's all kinds of ways that you can control natural light. But the idea is, unless you're running and gunning and just sticking a lob on someone and calling it a day, you want to pick a target window that is between that is not at sunrise, that's not at sunset, but it's also not at noon. So something that falls in that mid-morning or mid, mid to late afternoon time period. And then um, do your best to diffuse the natural light and either reflect to add fill light or use a really bright, soft light source to add fill light. And that's how you can help battle naturally lit situations and try to have a little bit more control over what's happening with the lighting outside. But anyway, that's a little bit on lighting. There's a lot more you can learn about lighting. And I have a whole podcast dedicated to lighting where you can learn all kinds of things about the different lights that are out there and, and learn all about, you know, picking lights and what kind of lights you should buy, which ones you should avoid, etc. So go check out that podcast. But just know that lighting is an art form in and of itself. It's the most creative and artistic way that you can make an interview stand out. So approach each interview, whether it's inside or outside, with the idea in mind that you are using light as an art source and do your best to control what you can control and work around what you can't control to create pretty looking images. All right, we've covered a lot of ground here, and I realize this is a long podcast, but there's a lot that goes into shooting better interviews. So we are almost done, but we have two last topics to cover. And one of those is going to be camera and lens choice. When I film interviews, I typically like to record on two cameras. Sometimes I'll record on one if I know I only need one camera angle because the person's not going to be on screen, but for a very small amount of time, then I might can get away with one camera. And sometimes I've done the opposite and I've I've ran three or four cameras. Might have two stationary cameras, like a, a tight and a wide, and it might have a third um, that is like medium and is on a, a motorized slider. You know, if I want to add some emotion or movement to an interview. But most of the time, I'm typically running two static cams. And adding a motorized slider is great. I do that if the if the project calls for it. But a lot of times I'm spending more time thinking about my sound and my lighting, and my lens choice, my framing, and what the interviewee is going to be talking about. So a motorized slider is great, but it's just cream on top. It's it's not like a, a must-have for me. I have a motorized slider. I use it for all kinds of stuff. But when it comes to interviews, I only use it if it's a really special interview that I feel 
I can take the extra time to set it up for. But most of the time, I'm running two cameras. And it's usually going to be a tight camera, and the other one's going to be either a medium or a wide shot. Now, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, do you want your subject looking into the lens or not? And that is a complete stylistic choice. I do both, to be honest. Sometimes I like for people to be talking to the camera, especially on the A cam. Uh, now, with the B cam probably won't have them talking to the camera, but the A cam, sometimes I will have them talking to the camera if I want them to be talking directly to the audience. If I'm wanting them to, to look like they're talking to you, then I will have them talking to the lens. And sometimes I also have clients that prefer that. But I also have clients that prefer to have the person be slightly offset, not staring straight into a lens. And sometimes I like that too. So I do both. It's a complete artistic choice and it depends on what it is that you're filming, but there's no right or wrong way to do it. You can have people look into the camera on your ACAM or not. It's completely up to you, your client, and the situation. But you need to figure that out because that's going to dictate your framing. And so on my ACAM, I first decide, do I want them looking into the lens or not? If I want them looking into the lens, then I have the camera obviously right in front of them. And I frame that up however, you know, however I want. Maybe I'll, it all depends on the situation. Maybe I want them in the center of the frame. Maybe I want them on the complete far right or left of the frame. It's all up to me and whatever I feel like the artistic choice is, or even up to the client, not always up to me. Sometimes the client wants to have their input. But the point is, is that, you know, you first have to decide, are they going to look into the A cam or not? And then from there, figure out how do you want to frame them? And I typically on my A cam go with a medium or a wide. A lot of times I used to go with medium shots on my A-cam, but lately, over the past couple of years, I've been switching to a little bit of a wider frame on my A-cam when possible. Sometimes I don't like the background or I don't like some of what's in the room, so I might use a, a, a more medium shot to cut the sides of the image out so that I don't have to see everything that's in the room or, or everything that's outside if we're outside. But if I can, I typically like a wider, something like a 35 mil lens for my A cam. And the reason is for lower thirds. Also, it's a framing choice. I think wider shot, like a 35 millimeter focal length does look kind of cool. It's kind of a nice, interesting look because you're bringing some of the environment, whether you're inside or outside, into the shot. But what really pushed me to start shooting more of a 35-ish type of focal length for my A-cam, whether they're looking at the camera or not, is for lower thirds or text information. I like having the ability to have a place on screen for lower thirds to go. If you have a tight shot, for example, you don't want the lower thirds to be like all up in the person's face or all up on their chest in a way that doesn't look attractive. So I try to think about my ACAM and like when the lower third might come on screen that has their name and contact information. And not every interview has lower thirds, but a lot of corporate commercial stuff does. And so if you're going to have like, maybe not contact information, but if you can have like their name and title, I guess is what I meant to say. You want to think about that before you shoot because that might help you dictate the framing. If you're like, man, I'm gonna have a lower third, it's gonna be the lower left-hand side, then you might frame the person on the right side of the frame with more of like a 35 mil lens. That way you've got plenty of space to put a lower thirds where it's not distracting. And then you can even use that to think about what's in your foreground or background of your framing. And so when I'm setting up props in a room, even if it's just pre-existing props, I'm just rearranging things, I'm always thinking about my A-cam, how wide can I make it without being too wide, to give me room for lower thirds and what is going to be in the shot when the lower thirds comes on the frame. Because I want to create a space. Sometimes I'll use a shallow depth of field to help me 
have a nice spot to put lower thirds, but sometimes I also might use like a, maybe there's a window. Maybe I have the person framed on the right side of the screen, but on the left side of the screen, there's a window there and it's like a perfect spot to slide in a lower third. So I think about that. So when you're looking at framing, don't just frame it up to what looks good to your eye, but also think about things like lower thirds or text information. Or are you going to put the date of an event that a person's inviting the audience to? Well, you need a spot on the screen for that to go. So you want to think about that on your A and B cam, like where, not just like what looks good, but where are we going to put information or text on screen if we want text on screen? So a lot of that goes into my A cam decision. So I'll, I'll, on my A cam, I'm typically looking for, like I said, a medium to wide shot, but more often than not wide. Now you don't want to go crazy wide. 24 mil, you you can get away with 24 mil, but that's starting to cut it close because you're you're running the risk of distorting the person. At 24 mil, if you're up close to the person, you will probably distort them some to some degree. So you don't want it to look like too wide. So 35 is like a really good sweet spot. I'll run a 35 1.4 G master lens on my Sony cameras like my FX6 a lot of times for interviews. Now you have to be careful with the lens like that because it has a lot of focus breathing. So I have to use focus breathing compensation on my camera. Otherwise, if I'm using autofocus, you'll see that pulsating effect. So I'd make sure focus breathing compensation is turned on when I use that prime. But I, um, I like that prime for interviews because I feel like it's a good focal length and being that it's a 1.4 lens, I can still create some soft bokeh, but not so soft that I can't see anything in the background because I kind of sometimes do want to see props. I do want to see accent lights. I do want to see things. Not so much that it's like in your face. You know, you don't need to be shooting at F8 or anything, but at the same time, I want a little bit of a pleasing softening effect. So 35 prime is a great way to achieve that. So that's like one of my favorite focal lengths. If I want something a little bit tighter, I might switch to a 50. So 35 one four or a 51 two G master. Those are my two go-to lenses typically for a cam. If I want something a little wider, like when I'm doing that panel of three people this coming week, my a cam might have the 24 mil on, but that's about as wide as I'll go. My B cam is typically going to be offset. Whether the a cam is offset or the person's looking into the camera, either way, my B cam is almost always going to be offset no matter what the A cam's doing. And if you don't know what the 180 degree rule is, I encourage you to look it up. I don't really want to explain it, but I do try to follow the 180 rule the best I can. But sometimes I break that rule if artistically I don't mind it. But more often than not, I stick to the 180 degree rule and my B cam is going to be offset, still following the 180 rule and is going to be tighter. Um, I have a 135 prime that I like, and sometimes I'll use that for interviews. But honestly, more often than not, on my B cam, I'm using a 7200. My 7200 2.8 is great. I can change the focal length as needed, especially for doing more than one interview in a day. I can just make sure my A cam is always at 35 or 50, and then I can take my 7200 and I can change the focal length based on what I want. You know how tight I want, but usually I'm running that, or I'm running the 135 prime, the 18 prime on my. B cam, one of the two. I plan to sell my 135.18 when the 85.12 or 85.14 G Master comes out. Um, there's a version two that is rumored to be coming, and I'm sure it will because the old one is the original 85 G Master is a pretty slow autofocusing lens. But whenever the new one comes out, I'm going to sell my 135 and I'm going to pick up the new 85, and that'll be one of my favorite choices, I think, for B cam work. But at the moment, I typically run the 7200 because I like being able to change focus, uh, my focal length. Plus, if you go to like 200 mil, if you really want to suck your subject out of the background, like I talked about earlier, 200 mil is a great way to do it. 150, 135, 
175, 200 millimeters, all those focal ranges really will suck the subject out of the background, which is something I typically like on my B cam. So I follow the 180 rule. I usually go tighter on the on the B cam. It might be like chest head. It might be just head. It depends on the, sh the shoot, the artistic approach I'm going for, but it's typically going to be a medium to tight shot, leaning more on the tight side, following the 180 rule and off to the side. Now, if I really want to get artistic, then I will either go handheld or I'll have um, a camera operator take the 70 to 200 and change the angle of the shot during the shoot. Like they might take the tripod. I'm actually having my camera operator do this next week. We're going to have three cameras on the interviews that we're doing next week. And it's a little bit more emotional because we're interviewing some former military people, some veterans who have transitioned to civilian life to work with this customer, this uh, client of mine. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to shoot on a medium lens and a wide lens on the A and the B. The B is going to be kind of like a medium kind of... Um, waist to top a head shot, the wide lens is going to be much wider, like a 35 or 24 on the A cam. And the C cam is going to be with a 70 to 200. And my camera operator is going to be on sticks and he's going to be moving the camera throughout the shoot. The A cam, the 3514 A, A cam is going to be slightly offset so that the, the people are not looking at the camera ever. It's going to be slightly offset, shot at 3514 or 21414. And then I'm going to have and, and, and that's going to give me room for lower thirds. And then I'm going to have the, the B cam with probably the 51.2 shooting kind of the, the, the medium shots. And then the C cam will all be 7,200. And what I'm going to have my camera operator do is I want him to get interesting shots that we may or may not use in the edit, but I'm hoping we do. So like whenever someone's, if someone's bouncing their leg up and down nervously, I want him to get shots of their feet bouncing up and down and then give me shots of like, if they have their hands on their, on their knees and they're fidgeting with their wedding ring, as they talk about something emotional, I want him to zoom in and get tight shots of his hands as they're fidgeting with the, with the wedding ring. If they're talking about something kind of emotional and you can see it in their face, I want them to zoom in and get something that's like top of the chest to the top of the head, kind of real zoomed in as we show emotion. And then in post, I might crop in, he's gonna be shooting at 8K, so we might crop in some in post uh, and slowly zoom in on that shot if it's an emotional moment. So I'm gonna have my camera operator running the C-cam, getting me tight shots of different things to add character to my interview. So if you want to spice your interview up or add character or emotion, that's a good way to do it. Another way to do it is you might shoot um, handheld. I've seen people do this a lot where you might have one stationary camera and one handheld camera, and I have done it, and it does look nice, depending on the project. For a lot of corporate stuff or commercially type stuff, I won't do that because I feel like the handheld look isn't the best for those kind of interviews. But for like doc work, it might look great or a narrative or something where maybe you might have some sort of interviews incorporated. Having a handheld cam during the interviews kind of looks cool, adds an extra dimension and emotion to the shot. So when I'm thinking about cameras and lenses, I'm not just thinking about framing, but sometimes I'm also thinking about movement. And that's again, where the motorized slider sometimes comes into play where if you're like, man, like this is a really artistic cinematic shoot and I want to add movement to the interviews, then you can look at adding like um, a four foot long dolly or a motorized slider that's on like 42 inch rails and having it slowly pan and slide at the same time, keeping the subject framed the same as it slam, pan, uh, 
slides and pans, you know, that's a great way to add movement to your shots. So uh, normally I'm doing two static cams, but sometimes I'll add a motorized slider or handheld shots, or like we're doing next week, having another camera operator who's going to be picking off tight shots of things to add emotion to it. So those are ways that you can spice up your, um, your images with your camera and lens choice, as well as by adding movement to the shot if the shoot calls for it. Now, a quick note before we move on, I do want to mention a few things about cameras and lenses. When I'm picking cameras for an interview, whether it's two cameras, whether it's three cameras, whatever, I typically try to stay within the same brand of camera and usually within like a newer, like whatever the generation is. So like the the current generation of Sony cameras, for example, I would want to run all current generation Sony cameras for my interviews because I want the A, the B, and if I have a C, the C camera as well, to all match really well in post. If I'm running you know, an FX6 for an A cam, but I'm running an FS7 for a B cam. Those are the same brand, but they're different generations or different models of cameras. So in post, it's gonna be harder to match them. But if I'm running all current day, modern Sony cameras, they all have similar color science. So even if they're different cameras, like an FX6, FX3, A1, they're all going to match really, really well. And I like that because I don't, I, you know, I don't want to shoot on a black magic and a red or red and a Canon or Canon or Sony or Sony or Nikon or whatever, because I don't want to be spending a ton of time in post trying to make them look consistent because if you're cutting between a wide cam and a tight cam or a tight cam and a medium cam, you're, it's going to be noticeable. If you're going from like a cam to B roll and then to B cam, maybe not so much, but if you're going from a cam to B cam, it's going to be noticeable if they don't match. So I definitely like sticking with the same brand of camera and the same generation of camera brand um, whenever I am, uh, or, or same generation of models whenever I am recording interviews, especially if I'm running two or three cameras because I, I want to make sure it's consistent. Same thing with lenses. I wouldn't want to run like, like a Zeiss CP on my A cam and then run like a Tamron on my B cam because they're going to have two completely different characteristics. The bokeh is going to look different between the two. Even the color on the glass is going to look different between the two. And it's going to give me some fits and posts. So if I'm running two, two cameras and I want to run cine glass, I'm running cine glass on both. I'm running all the same cine glass, you know, whether it's Cook lenses, whether it's Zeiss lenses, whether it's Canon's, whatever it is, I want the glass to be the same, the same uh, model or the same brand of glass from the same set. So a set of Cook lenses, a set of Zeiss lenses, a set of Canon lenses, so that the A and the B match, just like the camera themselves match. Uh, or if I'm if I'm running my G Master glass, I want it all to be uh, G Master glass, so that the A and the B and the C, if I'm using a C, all have consistent bokeh, consistent color, consistent sharpness, consistent fall off, etc. So they match. Another thing I do to help me match is I have um, the the subject right before we start rolling, whether we're inside or outside. I'll have them hold up a white a color. I have this big color checker, and I have them hold it up on the white side, and I'll take all of my cameras, and I will take them off the tripod, I'll walk up to the white balance card and I'll set the white balance to the white balance card. And it's important that your subject is holding the white balance card or that you at least have your white balance card where your subject is going to be because you want to set your white balance to where the subject is going to be. If you're setting your white balance somewhere else, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it's correct because that where your subject is, is where the light's going to be. And that's the light you want to set the white balance to. So I, wherever my subject's going to be, I have them hold a white balance card 
or if the subject's not there yet, I'll hang it from like a C-stand or something, but I'll walk up to it and I'll set my white balance in all my cameras to make sure that all the white balance is correct. And then I'll have the subject or on the C-stand, if I'm just hanging it from the C-stand, I'll switch over to the color chips of my color checker video. Um, and I will shoot the color checker video, the, the color chips. I'll actually shoot a recording on each camera of the color checker chips. And I'll make sure that I'm nice and close when I do this. So I might take the camera, walk up, set the white balance, and then have have uh, the, the subject, for example, swap over to the color checker side, and then I'll shoot the color checkers. You want to be kind of close, because if you're far away, it doesn't work as well in post, but you want a zoomed in tight shot of the color checker, so that in post, what this does is, even though I manually set the white balance on all three cameras, the color still might not be perfect. If you're using two different lenses, like a 7200 and a 50, they might both be G Master lenses or Canon L lenses or whatever, but they're still not the same exact lens, so it's possible that there could be a little bit of color shift, and the same is true with cameras. If you have one FX6 and you have one FX3 and you set the white balance to both, they still, even though they have the same sensor, they still have different processors. They're two different cameras. So in post, even though you set the white balance to both, they might still look slightly different. So by shooting a custom white balance on both cameras and then recording the color checker chips, it allows me to have a white balance that's close. And then in post, I can use the color checker chips in DaVinci Resolve to match both cameras identically. And if there's a third camera, same thing. That way all cameras look identical and it only takes me a couple minutes and then in post, boom, everything matches and I can copy the settings to all the interview shots on the A, the B, and the C and everything matches perfectly. So I shoot a white balance card and then I record a recording of the color checker video card so that I can in post get the color to match and everything. I even set my exposure that way too. I talked about this in last week's podcast uh, about um, dynamic range where I talked in the podcast about how to set your exposure to middle gray. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that here because I've already discussed that in last week's episode, but I will also shoot uh, or not shoot, but we'll point the cameras at a middle gray card on all the cameras and I'll set all my cameras to the same exposure, like 41% middle gray. That way all my cameras have the same exposure. They all have a custom white balance and they all recorded the color checker chips so that in post, I can I know when I get to post that the white balance is going to be close on all three, the exposure is going to be dead on on all three, and to get the color to match, all I have to do is color to the color checker chips on all three to bring all three cameras to a neutral point where they all match each other perfectly. And that is a really important step to me, uh, and that is, part again, part of the reason why I asked for an hour and a half to two hours to set up for interviews because I want everything to look and, and feel the same on every camera angle. And I want to make sure in post I can match everything really, really fast. So I'm not spending endless hours in post trying to match cameras or I'm not in post just willy nilly having two camera brands right next to each other and hope my audience doesn't notice. I want everything to look the same between my A and the B and the C if I have it so that everything is consistent in color and exposure. Now we've talked about locations. We've talked about audio, we've talked about lighting, we've talked about cameras and lenses and how to set everything up to where it all matches. So the last thing that we have to discuss is the interview itself. When it comes to filming interviews, the first thing I do is I try to loosen everyone up. And I have one phrase I always say, and if you're listening to this podcast and you've worked with me before, You've undoubtedly have heard me say this probably a million times, but every time I'm filming anybody, whether it's an interview or not, but especially interviews, I always say the same dumb dad joke, which is, 
Thanks guys for showing up. I appreciate you being here. Just in case you haven't already been told, I get a 10% finder's fee of any Hollywood contracts that come out of this. <laughs> it's so stupid, right? So dumb, but I say that every single time and it always makes people laugh or at least smile and it kind of loosens them up a little bit. It lets them know that I'm not going to be a hard person to work with and that this is going to be fun. I want to encourage people to feel like it's fun. So I start off with that joke. They usually say something like, oh my gosh, there's no way I'm going to get a Hollywood contract out of this. I'm going to be terrible and or, you know, or whatever. And then I start offering words of encouragement. I'll say things like, nah, man, like this is actually going to be the easiest thing you do all day. I promise. Like when we're done, you're going to look at me and be like, really? That's it? Like I try to encourage them, let them know like, hey, this is not a big deal. This is easy. And then I tell them like, hey, we're, we're recording on multiple cameras here. So if you screw up, no big deal. We'll just pick back up with where you screwed up at because I have different cameras and I can cut between the different angles to make it feel seamless. So you don't have to nail anything. I just want you to be yourself. So if you screw up, we'll just restart the part that you screwed up on and we'll cut to different angle and no one in post will ever know. No one who's watching will ever know that you messed up at all because of the multiple cameras. And we have a delete button, so if you feel really bad about how you did something or or whatever, we can always just stop what we're doing, hit the delete button and start all over again. Which of course I'm not actually deleting anything, but I don't I want I don't want them to think about that. I want them to think like, "Hey, I can be myself. If I mess up here, it doesn't matter." You know, we've got a ton of time and we've got you know, multiple cameras and we've got a delete button. Like that's what I want them thinking so that they loosen up a little bit. And then I ask them things like, hey, like I'm going to set the audio levels. And while I set the levels, tell me about your day. And I'll have them tell me about their day. And I'll ask them while they're telling me about their day. I'll be like, hey, you know, is that how you really sound whenever or how you, you know, you think you're going to sound when you're talking? And they're like, oh, well, I don't know. I might be a little louder. You know, so I try to get them to talk to me how they're going to sound. And I actually really do set the audio levels when they talk. But I'm also using that as an opportunity just to let them loosen up and talk. They'll sit down on camera and they'll start telling me about their day, what all they did today. And then I'll, I'll try to talk, ask them about it. They're like, well, you know, my day's going good. It started off though. I spilled coffee in the car, taking the kids to school. And I'll be like, oh my gosh, I do that all the time. You know, how old are your kids? And I'll just like have conversation with them. Let them know it's not all business. Loosen them up, get them to feel good. Even CEOs of huge companies sometimes can be awful on camera and have a complete meltdown if they're too nervous. I've seen that happen. Guys who get up and speak in front of big audiences, but for whatever reason, when you stick a camera in front of their face, they completely fall apart. And so to help prevent that, I ask them about their day. I ask them how they're doing. I crack jokes. I'm really, I'm really trying to be funny, even if I'm not funny, but I'm obviously trying to be so that they feel loose. They feel comfortable because if they're uncomfortable, everyone's going to see it on camera. You don't want that. So you got to loosen them up. You got to be fun. Don't be don't be rude. Don't be mean. I've had people I've literally sent out of a room before because they were obviously getting frustrated that the interviewee wasn't saying something well or was stumbling or whatever. And you could tell that the person was getting that was in the room with me was getting frustrated. And I will actually send that person out of the room. I don't want them in the room while that's happening because I do not want the person who we're interviewing to ever feel nervous or to feel pressure or anything. You have to take that off their plate. Let them feel loose. Let them feel good. Have fun with it. And if they screw up, 
laugh with them, make them laugh, be like, dude, what was that? You know, start laughing because you want them to loosen up and have a good time. You want to have water available for them so they can have something to drink so they can keep their mouth wet and so that they don't feel like they're um, losing their voice or that their mouth is drying up. So you want to have some water available and you want to make sure that whoever is a part of it is in the same mindset of you as you, which is we're here to have fun, this is gonna be a good time, and it's gonna be easy. And if you come across that way, if your body language comes across that way and doesn't come across as frustrated, as nervous, as, as, as like you're feeling like you're running out of time or anything like that, if you keep all that inside and you come across as fun, like you're there to have a good time, then those people will, un, will undoubtedly start to loosen up it is really easy to shut people down or to make them nervous or to make them feel pressure. And, and, and that will never come across well on camera. It's hard to loosen them up, but you got to try and you got to be really easy to work with so that they respond well. It's your job in that situation to be a leader of the, of the project and to coach people and direct people and get them to say what you want them to say, but do it in a manner where they come across as, being relaxed and comfortable and confident. And and you, like if you if you are the one who's DP in the project, it is up to you. Or if you're the director, it's up to you to make sure that they come across that way. And sometimes you're gonna run into people who flat out just can't can't come across well on camera. They just struggle. It's just hard. They just can't do it. And so you just gotta chug through it and rely on post-production to make them sound better. And that will happen. And I've had to perform miracles in post, literally creating sentences, like taking pieces and words from different sentences and stack them together and, and having B-roll in the background the whole time just to make it work. I've had to do that before. And, and, and you've probably, if you listen to this podcast, you probably had to do that before too. So sometimes people just aren't going to be good, but they're going to be a whole lot worse if you're not coming across as relaxed and, and, and as, as if you're there to have fun and that you're doing something that you love and, and send and kick out, literally kick out of the room, anyone who's taking away from that and who's adding a negative energy. So that is like a huge thing. Be positive, be fun, be laughing, be very personable, ask questions ask them about themselves, do things that relax them up, ask them about their hobbies. If they're wearing a fishing hat, when they walk in the room and you like to fish, ask them about fishing. You know, even if you don't like the fish, ask them about fishing, like do whatever you can to loosen them up so that they feel like they can relate to you and they can relax and have a good time. Another thing I do whenever I work with people is I let them know what I'm looking for. You don't want to just sit someone down and be like, all right, Tell me about this topic. <laughs> you want you want to try to coach them into saying what you want them to say, even if it's with a company that you don't know anything about, right? How many times you've been hired to work for a company and you really don't fully understand everything that the company does? Happens all the time in in this world, right? But you want to do your best to think about the kinds of things that you want them to say. Like, hey man, I want you to just start this off. Like, don't say hey, but just say your name. Just say, I'm John Jones, and then you know, tell me a little bit about um, your position in the company and how long you've been with the company and say, and then you could even give them an example. You could say, if I were in your shoes, I'd be, I, I would say something like this. I'm Josh Milligan and I am a DP with Rustic River Media. I've been working here for over eight years and have been doing X, Y, and Z. You know, I would just make something up just to kind of give them an idea of what I'm looking for. And then they would look at that and say, okay, I, I kind of see what you're going for. And then they'll kind of somewhat give you what you want. And if they don't give you exactly what you want, that's okay. You can let them know what they did right. Tell them what changes you want and ask them to do it again. And just be confident and come across 
as giving a lot of direction so that they don't feel lost. They don't know what you want. They don't do this for a living. They don't know how long the video is supposed to be most of the time, unless unless you know it's a client themselves. If it's an employee, they for sure probably don't know how long the video is supposed to be. They don't know what you're looking for. They don't know what you want in post. They don't know anything. They just know that they're supposed to be there and they're supposed to be answering questions for you. And so you've got to give them a lot of direction so that they fully understand what's happening and, and be consistent. I talked about this in another podcast episode when I, uh, I think it was called giving good direction, but you want to be very consistent. If, if you're like saying one minute, okay, we're recording, but then another minute you just look at them like you're ready for them to start. They're not going to know that you're recording. So be consistent and say something like, Hey, every time I'm going to say rolling. And when I say rolling, that means we're recording. And then I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say action. And when I say action, that's when I want you to start. You don't have to start right then, maybe count to five in your head. But after I say action, count to five and then start talking and be consistent and do that every single time so that they know exactly what to do every time. And there's no confusion. What you don't want is for them to be staring at you, waiting for something to happen and nothing ever happens. So you want to give them a consistency. You want to give them consistent direction. You want to be loose, fun, and you want to ask them for things, but in a very polite, fun-loving kind of way and give them a lot of positive feedback. You don't want to give them negative feedback, give them positive feedback so that they feel like they're doing a good job, even if they aren't. Even if they know they're not, if you're giving them positive feedback, it'll still make them feel like you're easy to work with and it'll still help keep them somewhat loose. So those are some important things. And go in with an idea of what you want them to say. Even if you aren't 100% sure, at least have some sort of an idea of what you want them to say so that you can coach them along and give them good direction. After all, if you are the DP of the project or if you are the director or whatever, if it's your project and you're the one in charge, it's up to you not the client, to make sure that everything is being said that needs to be said. You know, you don't want to rely on the client to ask the questions. Sometimes I'll have clients help me ask questions. But even then, it's still my project, and I'm still the one who's making sure I'm getting everything we need because I'm the one who knows what we need for post-production, not the client. The client may know of certain topics that need to be said or certain things that need to be covered, but the client doesn't actually know what I need for post. Only I know that because this is what I do for a living. So I need to be paying attention to everything that's being said during the interview, how it's going to be said, uh, how it comes across, how it's inflected. I'm thinking about how I'm cutting certain things together all on the spot so that I know when I leave, I have everything I need for my editor to be able to put together a solid project that comes across really natural on camera and sounds really good from A to B. So if I feel like we're missing something, I ask them for it. If I feel like I don't like how they worded something, I ask them to redo it. I give a lot of direction. I'm never afraid to ask questions, but I always am positive and I always give positive feedback. So they're never frustrated and they're always happy to do as many takes as we need. So that in post, I have everything I need. And that's really it. I mean, there's other things I could talk about, about giving direction. I, I did a whole podcast on that called giving good direction. So be sure to go listen to that. And of course, I've I've mentioned earlier in this podcast, I have a whole podcast episode that's about lighting. I have another one that's all about recording uh, great sound for interviews. So there are other dedicated podcast episodes you can listen to that dive further into each of these topics. But in general, these are the things that I like to think about when I get ready to record an interview. And this is how I feel you can shoot better interviews, have better sound, have better visuals, and have people that come across as natural and confident on camera. If you want to learn more about interviews beyond what's in the other podcast or in this one, uh, be sure to go to the Filming with Josh Facebook group and ask your questions there. You can also shoot me an email at josh 
rusticripper.media or find me on LinkedIn or Facebook under the name Joshua Milligan and I'll be happy to answer those questions for you. The Filming with Josh group is a great place though to go and ask these questions because there are other people beyond myself who can offer feedback about some of the things that you might want to learn more about than what we talked about today. So thanks again for listening to another episode of the Filming with Josh podcast. If you like the podcast, please be sure to rate it. And if you aren't already subscribed to the podcast, please subscribe to it so you can catch every episode. I appreciate you guys for listening in and I'll see you all next week. To learn more about Rustic River Media, visit us online at rusticriver.media. Thanks for listening to the Filming with Josh podcast. Catch every episode by hitting subscribe today. Today.